0: Hey, hey, it's episode 61 of the Planet LP Podcast. I'm Ted Astrocado, the guy who's been hosting this podcast since 2021. Looks like we're on course to keep the good times going well into 2023. Speaking of dates, it's October 2022, and like we've been doing since the beginning of the year, once a month, Pop Dose writer Keith Creighton comes on the pod to talk about new music, With the holidays approaching, this episode might be a good one to get gift ideas for other music obsessives in your life. We're going to expand the conversation a couple of times during this episode, and Keith will be on in just a few, and I'll explain what we're up to then. But while I have you here now, let's talk about being social. Planet LP is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Instagram and Twitter, we're at ThePlanetLP. Facebook, just search for Planet LP. And if you'd like to connect with me via email, you can. I'm at Ted at PlanetLP.com, and I know there are millions of podcasts out there vying for your attention every day, and for those of you who have subscribed or followed Planet LP on whatever podcasting app you use, I just wanted to say thank you very much for taking time to listen to this little homebrew podcast. Okay, let's get started with Keith. Has a month passed already?
1: Oh my God. When you said it's time to do the next one, I'm like, wait a minute. We just talked about 300 amazing (sighs) albums. How am I going to find 300 more to talk about? And yet here we did another boatload of like 2022 is like one of the best years ever for music. And we've got some really amazing titles to talk about today.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, Keith does come on the pod once a month to share some of his new music finds. Music he purchases on CD for the most part. Yeah, compact disc. I know you can stream many of the albums we're going to talk about, but wouldn't you rather have a physical copy for your collection? I know I often do with records that I really want to own. So Keith and I are also going to talk about something that's been a quest for many music fans, and that is pure or perfect sound. It's not as easy as you think. Plus, we're going to chit-chat a bit about how Regular guy rock is kind of a thing of the past, but not altogether forgotten. Indeed, we may be highlighting a band with a big branding issue because of a film in the 1980s that kind of branded them with another name. But first, let's get to some of the new releases this month. And with that, I turn it over to Keith. How amazing is it that we now have, after I
1: think it's been nine years, a new Yeah Yeah Yeah's record? So, Cool It Down just came out and it is just phenomenal. When I was listening to it, you know, I kind of think back. One of my, I watched the Stephen Colbert show mm-hmm. every night on CBS. I watch it the next day on DVR. Right. And in the Colbert questionnaire, he asks if you only had one song to listen to for the
0: rest of your life, what yeah. would it be? What would yours be, Ted, by the way? One song to listen to the, for the rest of my life? I would, <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm like bouncing around. But I did say, I guess it's coming down to two. One is Strawberry Fields, Forever with by the Beatles. Nice. The other one is Marathon by Rush. And I told my daughter, I said, when I die, please play that at my funeral and, and Strawberry Fields. They kind of bookend each other in a way. You know, one is very you know, psychedelic and the other one is very, you know, yeah, you got to kind of – you have to be in it for the long run and and uh, make sure that you you don't burn out too fast, that type of thing. So yeah. I guess those are the two. I know you wanted one, but I couldn't do it. So. Yeah. Well, I'm the same way. So my two are Head Over Heels
1: by the Go-Go's. Uh-huh. Right. Because That's a great that, song. Yeah. You know, the lyrics and that piano riff, like once uh-huh. it gets going, that blistering piano solo is just amazing. But my other one is Date With The Night by the Yeah, Yeah, Yes. That okay. one never ceases to just, whatever mood I'm in, it just corrects it. It mm-hmm. energizes me. It just fills me up because it's the collision of like Nick Zinner's guitars. Mm-hmm. this amazing. Just crash of drums. And then Karen O's does, you know, her Yelp squeal singing <laughs> is just intense. What and album is
0: that one from? Is that, that, that is the her,
1: first for,
0: for the debut or was it the a second little one? Second to one tell. Okay.
1: That whole album, is just amazing. But do you think the energy on that is just through the roof? And how are they possibly going to, if they tried to keep replicating that for the rest of their career, mm-hmm. she would fry her vocal cords out. Yeah. I mean, it's a full body workout, A, to go to a yeah, yeah, yeah show, let alone for them to play it. And I just don't see them being able to kind of keep that momentum up for 30, 40 years. You know? yeah, and so it's great, great to see right. how every successive album that they put out just goes on this amazing trajectory dramatically forward. So it stays consistent to what the yeah yeah Yeahs kind of is about, but you know they're now bringing lots of synths. She's singing a lot more, and I think her time doing like the soundtrack to the world of the wild things are and her solo project with um, Danger Mouse, you know, has kind of helped expand her mind a little bit mm, and her yeah. artistry. And now it's just so luscious and loving and provocative and dreamy. Yeah, the yeah yeah Yeahs, cool it down. It's only like thirty two minutes, but my god, they cram a lot in there. It's I've a listened wonderful lesson
0: yeah I've listened to that that album twice uh and both not like actively listening I had it in in my earbuds and it was at work but I was pleasantly surprised by the direction that the band has taken and you're right they they can't keep up with the intensity of their first couple of records it's just it's not possible if you want to have a career in music you're gonna fry your vocals but uh yeah very good very good one yeah, so,
1: so then I think with all of these, we're going to talk about the sound. So since we're going to be talking deeper on it, so yeah, for to hear the perfect sound, this one really makes your stereo system shine, and it's also great headset music. So mm-hmm. yes, thumbs up, cool it down, yeah, 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 it's highly recommended. They're on tour right now with the Japanese Breakfast and the Linda Lindas, the Linda Lindas of whom are probably still my going best album of the year. Highly recommended checking out the Linda Lindas. So- Linda
0: Lindas, yeah, I, they, they are one surprising band. I mean, they were just like they're so one. They're so young, right? They're all teenagers, and then two, they they're, they sound so confident for a band that young.
1: And yeah, they just played yeah. the Hollywood Bowl. And Karen O, it's been coming out on stage with them and Mm -hmm. it's almost like a mother figure to them because these girls, you know, they're still in high school, are having like the best year of their lives, (laughs) touring the world, playing big arenas, really honing their craft. And so I think the Linda Lindas are going to have just, if they want to, an amazing career. And so cannot recommend them enough. And also the Japanese breakfast record. Yeah. So now speaking of amazing women, you had Joanna Warren in your List of things to talk about this
0: year. Yeah, the, the latest single is called Tooth for a Tooth. I don't know much about her, honestly. I just sort of fell into listening to this. I, th- I was reading some, like you, I read a lot of music news, news, re- new releases, just, and then I see a name, I read a little blurb, I listen to it, and I go, oh, this is pretty good. This one is very wistful, it's kind of a dreamy ballad bits of jazz in there. That's always good. I always like that. I I call it the Sunday morning song for sort of sipping coffee and reading the New York Times book. Oh, nice. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, you just sort of let it in the background, but it's very nice. I just listened to the entire album twice, and I do like it. I think it's pretty good. It's a diverse record, and her voice doesn't stay in that jazzy, indie coffeehouse vibe for very long. She has this kind of ethereal quality to her voice, which is very nice and very pleasant, but then there are some songs, and I, I wrote this, I had to write this down because I thought it kind of s- summarized what her vocal style ends up being, snot, pop, punk, wow, so it's almost like there. It's just very, very kind of aggressive at times, and it's it's like, well, wow, this is kind of a diverse album, so if you want to check out the single, Tooth for a Tooth, very nice, very pleasant, but if you listen to the entire album, you're not going to get more of the same, which is nice. It's nice to have a variety. Like I think
1: Avril Lavigne, when I hear snot, pop, punk,
0: Yeah, yeah. Is that the same kind of thing? A little bit, yeah. There's, there's a little bit of that going on. Give give it a shot, Joanna Warren. You
1: always turn me on to something good. This, you (laughs) know, when we talk. So, yeah, love it. Okay, I'll check out Joanna Warren. Yeah,
0: and now we're gonna dovetail into a band that I got into back in the 1980s. I'm sure you did too, Keith. And they're back. Yeah, the Cult is back with under the
1: midnight sun and to be honest i haven't bought a lot of cult records lately mm-hmm. because of what i call the great betrayal oh. remember back in the early 80s when they had the dreamtime and love records mm-hmm. you know here was a chance for all of you know the smith loving makeup wearing goth kids to have a rock band you know yes. it was like they yeah. were ours love one of the best albums of all oh, time yeah. dreamtime's oh, amazing okay. too yeah. and then all of a sudden You know, we're waiting for the sequel to come out. You know, by then I was in college, you know, Love was more of a high school record. Mm -hmm. And then Electric comes out and they became ACDC. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, what the hell? It was almost like they
0: turned into the
1: very bullies that were picking on me for wearing my Smith's t-shirt.
0: They did go for hard rock. They they jettisoned that brilliance that they showed on Love and it just became – one more band that had that meat and potatoes ACDC sound.
1: Yeah, so I went and saw them on I think it was like that or the next tour where they opened for Metallica, and it was mm-hmm. my chance to actually go to a Metallica concert, and it was intense and I loved it. Um, But it was one of those things where I'm like, okay, hug them goodbye, say goodbye. They've gone off on this AC/DC wannabe trek. You know, I know there was a while he was under the same management as the Doors. There was wow. even talk that Ian Astbury was going to take over lead singer as the Doors, hmm. and so I was kind of like, okay, go, you know. I, and I, to be honest, I haven't thought about him in twenty years. Then all of a sudden, I find out that they re or they released the album Peace. Have you heard about Peace? I have not. No, I sort of dropped off, not following them. But continue, please. Yeah, so essentially, <laughs> Love and Peace were companion albums, and so Peace was the intended follow up. To love. Oh. And it kind of continues on that sound that really made Dreamtime and Love so amazing. But the band decided they just didn't like the sound. And so they reworked the arrangements and the mix, and all these songs, basically like a Rubik's Cube transitioned into electric. So they're the same songs, just a different arrangement. Hmm. And so they finally put out Peace and Electric. In a single package, because it also appeared in the Rare Cult box set, but that was hard to get. I think they only made like 5,000 copies of that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now it made sense. Like, peace totally bridges the sound from the love to the electric and beyond eras. Now looking back, as you know, they like kind of coming in on their fortieth anniversary, "Under the Midnight Sun" brings them full circle back to the sound of "Dreamtime and Love." Really, kind of gorgeous, more more occulty, gothic. You know, mm-hmm. singing some orchestrated, passionate, dark, melodic sounds that, to me, I found the entire album completely riveting all the way through the final track, which is the title track. And I'm like, oh my god, they've come back! They've come back! <laughs> Welcome so, back
0: to Cult. We missed you.
1: Yeah. So between those four albums, the Dreamtime Love piece, you know, and actually now that I have seen the transition, I really love Electric and Sonic Temple more. And so I'm like, oh my God, yes, their legacy is really insured. And man, Ian sounds better than ever. And of course, Billy Duffy is just an amazing guitarist. So I highly recommend The Cult Under the Midnight Sun.
0: Yeah. His voice has held up nicely. We often talk about that, you know, you're a writer for Popdos, and I write for Popdos too, but we're actually going to spotlight another pop ghost writer. It's all in the family here. Yeah. Uh, with, with an, an album by, well, a band from eighties era that one of our colleagues he got to interview.
1: I mean, that was a huge score. David Metzger got a huge interview with um, Ian Brody of the Lightning Mm -hmm. Seeds, you know, really got him to open up. I mean, that's, I highly recommend going to popdose.com. It's still on the homepage. You know, really read the Ian Brody interview because he just put it on as is, no editing, and really surprising to kind of see where such an iconic, not only singer, recording artist, and producer is. You know at the stage of life kind of wondering maybe this is his last go around as the lightning seeds it's been forever since he's actually put one out in the title one of the big things and here's a spoiler alert in the interview they reveal the prince inspired band name origin story which i never knew i didn't either if you know the raspberry beret you know there's a line in raspberry beret by prince that says thunder drowns out what the lightning sees Lightning seeds was a common misinterpretation of those lyrics. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. On this new album, See You in the Stars, he even collaborates a bit with James Skelly of The Coral. And so here's the my big emotional connection to the Lightning Seeds. Brody produced their The Coral's debut album, which I've talked about before. It just got re-released earlier this year, so we talked about it on a previous podcast. But mm-hmm. yeah, The Coral by The Coral is one of the greatest albums of all time. They never worked with Brody again, and they never really kind of captured that just anything goes psychedelic spirit. Mm. And so it's really kind of cool to see the two of them working together because now James Skelly, the singer, is also a producer. Yeah, See You in the Stars, very, very kind of poignant, beautiful synth pop. But if you like lightning seeds like Life of Riley and Pure, highly recommend checking out the new
0: one. Next, we move to a band that I thought, wait a minute, didn't they just release a record? I know we were just talking about it, but it looks like... I guess it's a new
1: thing, maybe it's a meme or something, but bands are putting out two records in the same year, you know, because I remember back in the day, Guns N' Roses, you know, Mm -hmm. did two on the same day. So did Springsteen, but, you know, maybe space it out a little bit, give people some time to breathe. So Jack White put out two, I remember last year, Lana Del Rey put out two. The Peppers are decided to one up Jack White by releasing two double albums in a year. And that is a lot of music it's to take a lot. on, it you is. know, it so is. I, to be honest, can't process that much music, even in a single take. So, but the thing is, you know, I've been loving listening to, it. I bought both of them on CD and they're the first Chili Peppers records I bought. Cause I was kind of interested when they had said that they had this just really prolific run with Rick Rubin in the studio, right. I'm like, okay, I really want to check this out, see what this create, how the creative process kind of worked. And so I really, really like Dream Canteen. The first album, I'll be completely honest, It's called "Tippy My Tongue, (laughs) and it actually feels like a Weird Al parody of a Chili Pepper song.
0: (laughs) Well, the title alone sounds like, yeah, definitely a Chili Pepper lyric,
1: right? You know, it's kind of like really sending up, like almost everybody is taking an extreme version of what they do. You know, it's very cartoony. But then, like by track five, when Fake As Funk comes in, it reminds you why you came to the party in the first place. Hmm. And throughout, Flea's bass just kind of drives the entire record. I love the fact that Chad Smith is really coming into his own as not only a celebrity, but like a go-to musician because he's all, all over that previous Ozzy Osbourne record that we right, talked about. Right. They captured a lot of great stuff in that session. And so I didn't really kind of gravitate to one track or another, but I had the whole thing on and it just made my entire apartment just lovely. Very <laughs> groovy. Totally get it. Go Chili Peppers. We're German Dream Canteen. It was only nine bucks on Amazon. I'm like, okay, that's low risk. Why not? So recommend that.
0: I guess the uh the marketing mantra for the red hot chili Peppers is volume 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 We're just gonna release a bunch of music yeah. and like you said can can you really ingest that much music or take it in and process it It's a lot but if you're a chili Peppers fan, you must be in you know Chili Pepper heaven right now so
1: yeah why not more the merrier who can you know especially in the era of streaming where a lot of people aren't buying actual mm-hmm. records mm-hmm. it's like okay right. go nuts just yeah. like, get yeah. yourself lost in the can fan- candy factory.
0: Might as well. So this next artist, I don't know anything about them, but apparently they had a number one debut in the UK? So you would think, you know, so here's my thing. I am a
1: huge fan of Paul Heaton. I probably have more than 25 albums of his. Who is Paul Heaton? I don't know who Paul Heaton is. Yeah. I'm losing my mind. All right. So Paul Heaton started off in a band called the House Martins, Oh, I back, know them. Okay, Back in the 80s, yeah. you know, right. like Barbershop, Harmony is kind of the precursor to Britpop. Mm-hmm. Fatboy Slim was in that band and then Fatboy left, you know, and um, so then he carried on. They rebranded as the Beautiful South. And throughout the 90s, the Beautiful South was just, especially as grunge was kind of coming and going and Britpop was kind of coming and going, the Beautiful South was consistent. Hmm. They put out like every other year, you would know what you're exactly what you're going to get. Beautiful, sunny harmonies with some of the darkest, most twisted lyrics you're ever going to (laughs) hear in your life. Gorgeous album artwork. So when we talk about especially like the art of the CD. So they put a lot of thought into their packaging. And then they would always show up in Chicago. We would go see them at the Park West Theater, mostly a crowd of expats. And so The Beautiful South was always a very British thing, but there's enough expats everywhere in the world that their albums do really well. Mm-hmm. I highly recommend, you know, like The Beautiful South records are just gorgeous. And so he has always had like a, a several different female singers to play off of, you know. So one of their biggest hits off of their second record was called A Little Time with Brianna Corrigan playing, you know, the counter to Paul Heaton as Lovers Gone Wrong. Paul Heaton's voice really mixes well with having a female counterpart for the last phase of the beautiful South Jackie Abbott stepped in and played that part and in their book that they talk about their their origin story the women always mentioned because it's such a big band and it's a boys scene and they're all kind of like pub lifers, you know, at the, at the local pubs, they're drinkers and alcohol is a constant theme in their records that it's hard for the woman to kind of coexist in mm-hmm. the voice club. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so that's why they kind of churned through their different singers, but Jackie Abbott kept on for the last run of the beautiful South. And then they just started releasing records as Paul Heaton and Jackie Abbott. Okay. And so this is their fifth one. I had no idea this was coming out. It's coming. I've listened to it on streaming. And once again, it delivers exactly what you want. Beautiful duets. You know, Jackie will do some where she's singing lead or Paul will sing lead and they harmonize and they sing backup for each other. This one's called NK-pop. Looking at the cover and now, okay, I think I get the, the dark joke here. It's, you know, kind of <laughs> going on K-pop, but with North <laughs> Korea. Oh, and so jeez. He kind of looks like Kim Jong-un, you know, on the cover art and stuff like that. And he has never been shy about swinging some punches because that's what really kind of makes the beautiful South work is you got these beautiful songs. And if you're not paying attention, you're just kind of singing along and you feel the sun and the birds in the sky and all that. Then you pay attention to the lyrics and you're like, holy crap. Whoa, that's dark. But that's half the fun of The Beautiful South. And so for fans of that band, the sound just keeps going on on their fifth album, NK-pop, number one in the UK this week. Wow. So that's Paul Heaton and Jackie Okay, Adams.
0: Okay. The next artist, if I said to a crowded room, hey, everybody, remember Bare Naked Ladies? And lots of hands would go up. Yeah, yeah, yeah I remember them. Hey, everybody, remember Stephen Page? Maybe a few hands would go up like that. And then you would say, "Oh yeah, he was in Bare Naked Ladies, but his post Bare Naked Ladies career has been way more impressive than the band that he left, and he has a new album now."
1: Yeah, so Stephen Page, his latest album is called Excelsior. Mm -hmm. When they were all together, it was magic. Yeah, you know, because two lead singers, which Stephen was one, played off each other really well. You never knew what you were going to get in a live experience because they would just improvise and make up songs on the spot. And the band <laughs> would just kind of go along for the ride. And it was a pure delight. And they had all those really sunny hits off their debut album, Gordon. Gordon and then, of is course, great. Yeah. Yeah. Stunt came a couple years later with, you know, it was just like their number one album. Mm-hmm. You know, then they've got, you know, and remember Stephen Sings lead on the, the Big Bang Theory theme song. But Steven had some issues and had to deal with addiction and other behavioral issues. And so when it finally came time for the band to part ways, so Steven went off on his own, the band kept going. The band puts out a lot of records and they still are a major live draw and they still do the improv and that all kind of thing. But it just never felt the same because Paige added that element of danger. And a little bit of darkness, and a little bit, you know, he had the definitely the more prominent singing voice when the two sang co-leads. He really was, to paraphrase one of their first big singles, he was the Brian Wilson to the Bare Naked Ladies <laughs> Beach Boys.
0: <laughs> he was Ed Robinson, who's the the other. Guy who does the vocals with the Bare Naked Ladies. I had a chance. I didn't actually interview him. I wrote the questions for an afternoon DJ to interview him because Bare Naked Ladies were coming to town, and this is around the time that they split with Stephen Page. That was still pretty funny on the phone. He he had some good one liners and good quips and things like that. I can't remember what song it was that they were promoting as a single, but it it had allusions to the split with Stephen Page. So I, I wrote question basically and gave it to the dj and it said you know it's a song blah 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 about the, the split that you had with your longtime collaborator Stephen page he goes no it's actually about jogging through the livermore valley wine country <laughs> well there you go i thought that was pretty yeah, good and the, station, for the station yeah. was licensed for livermore so that he was trying to keep it local and they were playing wenty vineyard so uh, <laughs> yeah, i thought it was pretty funny but yeah,
1: and anyway, they, they but, did reunite. Yeah, yeah. By the way, when they got, I think it was like in the, one of the Canadian Grammys, whatever that mm-hmm. would be. And so Juno um, is it the Juno Juneau? Junos? Yeah, I Juneaus think that's what yeah. it was. Yeah. So I mean, I still have hope that they all get back together one of these days. But I think the nice thing is about going solo; it liberated him from the baggage of the naked ladies. Because mm-hmm. even though they have mm-hmm. a delightful stage show, he still has the thing. If I had a million dollars every show. And I, I haven't been to a BNL concert in forever, but I remember back in the day you would just get pelted with Kraft mac and cheese. It was like a thing <laughs> yeah, to right. do the point where they, you know, just like the Foo Fighters had to say, stop throwing, you know, the mince Mentos at us, <laughs> you know, when you reference something like that and it becomes a thing like a meme in the concert, here's the thing. So we've been talking about a lot, you know, now that we're post we're at least post lockdown phase of the COVID pandemic. Yeah, but a lot of the records that have been released, you know, because now that the bands can tour them, you know, tour the record, that's where sure, they sure. But the, the bands the money always is. admit, yeah, yeah. We recorded this before the pandemic. We had to sit on it, and now we could tour it. We put it out. This is one of the first true pandemic albums to emerge, as one that kind of was both written and created and addresses the pandemic. You would think that's a big downer, but kind of like the Beautiful South and Paul Heaton that we just talked about, he wraps very deep thoughts about death, loneliness, loss, and even a great song about our artificial intelligence being our new emotional partners into buoyant melodies, you know, and great arrangements. It definitely, oh my God, fills the room with just amazing songs and joy and lots of texture. And it's one of those, somewhere you're not going to get the album right away, but give it a couple of spins and let it reveal itself to you. So
0: yeah, that that was my take, I guess a hot take really, because I've only listened to half the record at this point and I thought I got to come back to this because I'm not I'm, I'm too distracted by what I'm doing you know I have it on in the background I think I have to actively sit down and listen to it but yeah so yeah. far what I, I was very different definitely very yeah, different the,
1: yeah way. the first time I listened to it it didn't really connect with me because I was mm-hmm. the same with you I was doing laundry yeah. I was dealing with my daughter who was you know doing her own thing and so um, didn't really connect but once I really spent some time with it it was amazing and so he's on tour right now with a little band you may have heard of called The Who hmm. I so think I remember that. Really them. small little <laughs> venues. I think like United Center in Chicago, and so yeah,
0: yeah, exactly you know, the Chase Center in San Francisco. That sort of thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: Right. So I bet that people going to the Who aren't going to recognize who the opening act is as the Stephen Page trio, but once he starts singing, they're going to recognize him. So yeah,
0: interesting pairing. Yeah, the Who and Stephen Page. Yeah. <laughs> so so and then,
1: we're kind of, kind of continuing it- our thoughts here, you know, um, in terms of carrying on, mm-hmm. you know, Buzzcocks have a new album, one of your
0: favorites, right? They're like yeah. one of your favorite
1: bands. Love love love, going back in the day, there their songs like Oh Shit and Orgasm Addict were just so dangerous for, you know, my preteen and teenage self to kind of discover. And you would think that Pete Shelley, who was the voice of the Buzzcocks, died in 2018 that that'd be it, because the other co-lead singer and co-founder, Howard Devoto, left early on, you know, before the 80s even hit. And yet, one of the early, early um, guitarists, Steve Diggle, is carrying on the torch, and he's now singing. And when you put it on, you're like, yeah, that's a Buzzcocks record. Hmm. Yep, totally makes sense. I do love the fact it's out on Cherry Red Records, who does a lot of re-releases and right. great box sets. And if we get around to talking about you know, Christmas wish lists, they've got a bunch of amazing box sets coming out. But yeah, check out Sonics for the Soul. It's okay. nice to have that Buzzcocks sound continuing. They're kind of a 70s-era uh, late 70s? Is
0: it yeah, late 70s. 77, yeah, okay. 76, I think they started. Okay. Okay. So mid to late. Okay. So Brian Eno is a, another artist that I've been listening to since the 80s. I know he's a 70s era musician who was with Roxy Music for a while, and now he's he was the, the go-to producer for a lot of big acts, most notably U2. U2 used Brian Eno and And Daniel Lenoir to produce all the big, big ones, though. All the The big ones, 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 yeah. Like, all I have to say is Joshua Tree. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that was Brian Eno. And you could also say Unforgettable Fire because that was their first collaboration with Eno and Lenoir. But he just released an album called Forever and Nevermore. I've listened to this twice. And (laughs) the one thing about Eno, give him credit for this is like his 22nd. Studio record, but he always tries to change it up a little bit. Sometimes his records are pretty accessible. And, you know, he had done some collaborations with David Byrne. One was called My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, which was very experimental, a lot of tape loops and things like that. But in 2008, he released Everything That Happens Will Happen Today and another collaboration with David Byrne. But that one had very accessible songs. I am sorry to report that this current record doesn't automatically feel very accessible. There's some disquieting and unsettling experimentation going on here, which is great, which I think is something that shows that he's not giving up in trying to push the envelope a bit here and there. Overall, the mood seems very meditative on this record, and I liked his ambient records, but this isn't that kind of ambient noise that he's creating or or sounds that he had created back in the 70s and and partially into the 80s there's a i think there's kind of an underlying tension to these songs that all is not right with the world right now and he does that by creating this sort of sonic landscape that makes everything a little bit eh, not too comfortable so i've only listened to the record once maybe once and some change like a couple of tracks i listened to twice or something but I'm going to come back to it but only when I'm in the mood because it's you have to be in a certain mood to really kind of get into this. And uh so that's Brian Eno's latest yeah. one
1: that just came out. Yeah, it's one of those that I just I always wonder what the who the audience is for a record like that. You know, one mm-hmm. that's like okay, it's going to challenge me and disturb me and agitate me a little bit. You know, I right. I go for the full I want Big melodies, yeah. Escape, you know. I yeah. want to be entertained and uplifted and moved to tears, like that kind of stuff. So that's kind of where I go for. Yeah,
0: and I and I should have mentioned, and you brought this up in an off mic comment about, well, Brian Eno worked with some little known artist called David Bowie. I forgot to mention Bowie. Okay, yeah. One of those. Cor- Davids, there's so, <laughs> so many Davids he's working with. It's hard yeah. to keep track. Yes, exactly. <laughs> So you said you want to go for big and bold. And I think these yeah. next group of albums really does kind of yeah. get We
1: previewed this last month and it came out and man, did it deliver. And that is mm-hmm. the new dropkick Murphys. This machine still kills fascists. And so, oh my God, it is amazing. So I love how the facts. So one of their biggest hits shipping up to Boston was a Woody Guthrie song that they kind of did their spin on. And so the Woody Guthrie estate, you know, reached out to them saying, hey, we've got journals and journals of lyrics that never made their way in the Woody Guthrie songs. Would you be interested? Yeah. And so they figured, okay, they one of their co-lead singers is Al bar who has been with them since the second album, but he mm-hmm. is taking time off from the band to care for his mother. Okay. And so the band figured, okay, maybe this is the right time to do something like this. And so they went through, looked and found the lyrics that they could kind of work with and then arranged it and then created an acoustic record. But don't think this is some sleepy VH1 kind of acoustic record. It rocks. Hmm. It's a very tight 30 minutes and it really brings out like they are just the perfect match for Woody Guthrie's lyrics because you go back one of their biggest records was Blackout and the second track on there is The Worker's Song. You know, so they really get the the plight of the worker, the American right. worker, the right. factory worker. The generation that, you know, they're the first also that have to get in line and sign up and, you know, enlist in the army. Yet Society puts the worker down time and again. And so, this is what Woody Guthrie was all about. And so, it's amazing to hear his songs just sound like Dropkick Murphy songs. Mm -hmm. And so, it really honors both legacies, Guthrie and the Murphys. Highly recommend this machine still kills fascists. And this brings up, I think, our segue into the next part of this podcast. Yeah, I think so. The Murphys. Just like, remember also previous month, we talked about the new Flogging Molly record. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which I liked. I did like that. It was very good. And both have big Irish undertones. Mm -hmm. Both sound amazing. Like you could hear every single musical part. Every musician gets a chance to shine. Those mixes really breathe. They're delightful listens. Which then brings up my biggest disappointment, hands down in 2022, is the new Gogol Bordello record. Now I love Gogol Bordello, you know, and I'm like, right,
0: right.
1: so imagine what the Murphys and the Flogging Molly are to Irish music and punk rock. Gogol Bordello is to Ukrainian music and punk rock. They call it gypsy punk.
0: You can and definitely hear it. Just, that's a good, that's a good uh, descriptor because it, it does sound like that.
1: Yeah. And so their breakthrough album in 20, 2005 was mm-hmm. Gypsy Punk's underdog world strike. And their follow-up, Super Taranta, you know, God, they're a little tongue-tied to say those, but yeah, yeah. Oh my God, you would hear so many different things happening in the mix, and it just sounds like a movement. You could see them moving through the streets, everyone playing their instruments. And like, kind of like the gypsies wandering and stuff, especially to hear, cause you know, Eugene Hutz, the singer, young gangly kind of guy, mm-hmm. but then he's got old men in beards and then younger women singing backup vocals, if you can call it, because sometimes they're screeching and shrieking and it's just an absolute delight. I've kind of parted ways with them over the years. Cause like for a while, Eugene Hutz was acting in movies. He then befriended Madonna. But now with the war in Ukraine, I was really eager to see what he has to say. I had previewed the tracks on an MP3 and found it really compressed. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to buy the CD because I want to hear this thing, you know, what it sounds like, unfiltered, uncompressed. And it was such a bummer because all the tracks sound promising. The performance and the energy is there. The spirit is definitely there. But it is horribly mastered, you know, and it's just one of those things where it I get a headache listening to it. It's it's almost sounds like the person in the next apartment is playing it at full tilt and I have to listen to it through a wall. You know, (laughs) you had a chance to check it out. What'd you think of it?
0: Yeah, you did ask me, you said, check this out. This thing gave me a headache, man. I said, okay. So I immediately put it on headphones because I wanted to see, okay, so what's going on with the mix in this thing? What they did, whoever mixed it, really pushed every musical element, including the voices, to the maximum volume. So we've talked a little bit here and there about the loudness wars during the 90s and early 2000s, where mastering engineers were being pressured by labels to really push the volume to the maximum when they mastered a CD, because they wanted that to be the loudest thing that came out of somebody's speaker. Sounds like they did a little bit of this. It looks like they really pushed all the levels up. If you look at the waveform of it, you know, when you just look at a waveform in a two-track recorder or whatever, you can even Google what does a waveform look like. If you do that production-wise, you encounter something called brick walling. And that means that it just looks like a big brick wall of, of a waveform of all the sound that's there. You don't have any dynamic range. You don't have any variation. So, really, what you need to do is you need to lower that volume a little bit to allow certain instruments to come up, even the voice. It gives people room to breathe, people being the listener. So if everything is brick walled, it just comes at as, as like almost like it's assaulting your eardrums. And I I understand why you got a headache listening to this record, because I can't listen to a lot of the Albums that have been brick walled. I, I take them back. For example, a Pete Townsend album that came out in the early 80s called All the Best Cowboys Have Chinese Eyes. There was a label. I think they were out of – I think it's Poland. I think it's called Hippo Records or something. So they were saying that there was a, a missing track or you know bonus track. So I bought it through Amazon. I put this thing on. It was horrible. I was like, what this thing sounds like crap? I had the original – master remaster that came out from his label, but this other label put out this brick walled version and it didn't have the additional tracks either. So that was one of the most disappointing things I was expecting to really, you know, hear this wonderful remastered version of an album that's been a mainstay of mine for, you know, 40 something years at this point. But yeah, I think with Gogol Bardello, you, you had that, you, you had the brick walling experience where, it just was very unpleasant.
1: Yeah, there, here's the, my
0: two cents on it.
1: Yeah, here's the funniest, and this is one of those things where it was a little bit egg on my face, and I'm going to completely admit to it right here. So when I was trying to figure out how I was going to explain and discuss this album with you, my first thought was, oh, here's a great comparison. Nevermind by Nirvana mm-hmm. compared with In Utero. Nevermind mm-hmm. was produced by Butch Vig, right. And you know how crisp and sonically perfect that record is in yeah. terms of hearing all of the – the nuances of Dave's drumming and Chris's bass and, you know, the, the guitar parts versus in utero, which Steve Albini produced or Albini as Albini or
0: Albini. I think it's Albini. Yeah. Albini.
1: Okay. Yeah. So Chicago guy, you know, noted producer. It's definitely a harsher record, mm-hmm, in utero, mm-hmm. even though there's some amazing songs in *In And I love them both. It's just, you know, Albini's whole mix, you know, it's very, it's very band all plays together. Yeah. We're yeah. not going to do a lot of, you know, bells and whistles where, when you watch the ultimate, the ultimate classic albums, which is on Axis TV, you could find it yeah. on Amazon Prime. Yep. which Vig talks about how he wanted a bigger guitar part. And so he had a trick. Kurt into recording it twice, <laughs> you know, because Kurt didn't want to record, do multiple guitar takes. So he said, oh, yeah. we lost that one. And Kurt was able to actually replicate the guitar part so perfectly that he could mass like multi-track it and get that big sound.
0: Exactly. That's what they do. So you want a beefier guitar sound, you're going to have to record it twice and layer it in. Yeah.
1: So then, so I'm thinking, okay, that's it. So the new album... You know, I don't even know how to say it. Soldaratine, which I think is a playoff of Solidarity, but no, mm-hmm. compared to the Gypsy Punks Underdog World Strike album, I'm like, okay, I'm going to go back and find out who that genius producer was on that early album. I opened up the CD, it's Steve Albini. <laughs> <laughs> So you can't blame the producer. Yeah,
0: yeah. Something happened in the mix. I mean,
1: producer, you know, that's probably the best Steve Albini record I've ever heard. And I actually do (laughs) like, you know, something I'm I'm really bummed. I would love to see someday if they do a remix on this, because now that we're going to talk a little bit deeper about sound quality, there's been three versions now of Nevermind that have come out. And huh. the latest one doesn't sound anywhere as good as the earlier ones, you know? So I think what's happening is their wall of sounding it that. Yeah, and that brings up the bigger yeah. debate as to vinyl or CD. Mm-hmm. And then even within those, there's no two releases that are the same. And then I was surprised when you kind of sent me this link that we're going to talk about a Washington Post article that even within a pressing. Of vinyl, no two pieces of vinyl sound the same, and I didn't know yeah. that. I was completely I shocked. Yeah. So I'll, I'll let you set up how you found this article and this podcast, and let's talk about it.
0: So I listened to a podcast by the Bulwark. They're mostly a political sort of center right, and I'd like to get not the far, but not the far right. But I, I don't mind listening to people who are never Trumpers talk about politics. But they also have a movie reviewer that's on there. And he also has his own podcast. So there was an author that was invited on who wrote a article for the Washington Post. And the title of the article is called The Search for the Perfect Sound. And the journalist is Jeff Edgers, And he wrote a very thorough piece, very nicely done, a lot of interactive stuff on there. And it's something that I think for you, dear listener can pretty much get from our conversation today that sometimes there's very pleasant listening experiences and sometimes there's very unpleasant listening experiences. So if you're very picky about the sound of a recording, which I think Keith is, I think I am. And I think a lot of people who listen to Planet LP are, you're constantly thinking, yeah, this sounds pretty good until you hear something else, a same album, And you're like, wow, that really sounds very full, very pleasant, very – how did they get that sound? So, for example, the Beatles catalog that keeps getting remixed and remastered, you get more crisp versions of those classic albums. And if you have the original pressings, you may go back and drop the needle on those and you think, oh, yeah, it sounds a little thin or it doesn't sound quite that great, but this one sounds even better. So I read the article. I I sent it over to Keith, and I said, what do you think of this? And also the podcast, which which, uh, Jeff was on. And he said, well, we should talk about this because I think that what we are being sold often with these new remixes or remasters or somebody saying, hey, vinyl's way better than CD, not always the case. Sometimes you go and you get charged $40 for a vinyl record and you may find out that it doesn't have that great dynamic range. You may be fooled by that. I know I was, and I can tell a brief story about buying a gift for my brother, who's a big vinyl guy. And I bought him Zenyata Mandata by the police. And we put it on, and it sounded like garbage. I said, this thing sounds so thin. I spent 40 bucks on this thing. <laughs> he says, you're right. He says, let me, let me pull something out from... From the '80s era, let me pull out a, a police album from from 1980, you know, like Synchronicity. Yeah, not a fair comparison, but uh, different, you know. But he dropped it, you know, and, and you could tell there was a different sound to it. And rolled on vinyl out, I, on both on both were on vinyl, okay. and it's, it turns out what I found out about some of these vinyl pressings is they take the digital recording that's mastered for CD and they just plop it down on vinyl, which is not what you want to do. You have to master it specifically for the format. You can't master it. Take a take a mastered version, say, for a compact disc and say, oh, we'll just press out, press out a bunch of vinyl and charge 40 bucks, which is exactly what the label did. So, <laughs> and I think that, Keith, you, you say that, yeah, I buy stuff on CD because it's the superior sound format, which it is, because you said something earlier, which is the problem with vinyl is that the more you play it, the more it deteriorates. So there's that. There's that problem with it, right? It's just that sense of- Every time you
1: put that needle on the record, you're adding more pops and pings to the experience. And you figure you know, while your side A is playing, your side B is rubbing against the mat, getting dust and other things in there. You have to ritualize the cleaning process before every listen. Mm -hmm. Plus, by having to flip the record, you don't get a full album experience. You have to stop. You know, manually tend to the record, flip it, mm-hmm. clean it, and then keep it going. And I had no idea. So, kind of preparing for this podcast, I decided to watch a lot of YouTube videos about how yeah. vinyl gets made. And kind right. of the same way when I was a kid, they took us to the Hostess Factory to see how Twinkies get made. And <laughs> you never are the same. Like, that's how you explain <laughs> sex ed to kids watch a Twinkie get made, and you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. And so, the exact opposite. Of a Twinkie is how a vinyl record gets made. So it starts mm-hmm. off kind of looking like a Twinkie. I think they call it the puck, you know, this little slab of vinyl that then they have to put onto a press, and then they smash it, carve off the, the the scraps, throw the scraps away, polish it up, and put it in the sleeve. Mm-hmm. And so I had no idea. Especially, it was kind of fun to see. Oh, how they make like the splatter vinyl and how those are just little kind of like they look like skittles and they have to roll right. the puck in the skittles and then put it in to smash it and then i also was looking because here was the thing i was like okay record store day is coming up and mm-hmm. i looked at a lot of the things that they're saying oh you're getting this special color vinyl you're getting the special picture disc you're getting the special remix those are the three big things they sell right shit you already have but you're getting a new mix you're getting a new color or a new variant and so i'm like I kind of wonder, does black vinyl, it just looks like it sounds better because it looks deep and, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of creamy and lush, you know, like when you get a brand new black vinyl record, does it sound worse than the colored variants? And the one thing I was surprised when I did the research was, yes, depending on the color they use, the sound is going to differ. Really? So yeah, vinyl itself is colored black. But the very fact of what they use to color it black actually aids in the life, like the life length and cycle and durability of the record, you know, know. so then various tints can actually weaken that or the record degrades faster and doesn't Hmm. hold the fidelity as much. And so I was completely shocked. And then they said, oh, of course, and picture discs are just shit because essentially you have a piece of paper in the middle of the disc. That they've smashed plastic on each side. So if you're looking for fidelity, don't go for the picture disc. do that as a collector, put it on yeah. the wall, yeah. show it to your friends, look, blah, 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 you know, but like stay away from picture discs if you want fidelity, but then really do your research when you're trying to picture between a rainbow of colors options available to you, which one matches your needs because there's certain colors that are going to sound better and last longer than black. But then this is also why I like CD. 30 years later, that CD is going to sound just as perfect Mm -hmm. as it did the day, the first day. If you take care of your CD, I've only had two or three CDs fail on me over the years. That's why I like it because you put it in, you forget it. You get the same experience in the car as you do at home. I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to tend to it and mother it and... Burp it in and all this kind of stuff, <laughs> you know. It's just like, oh, geez,
0: <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot of work.
1: Yeah, it is, it is, yeah, yeah. But I yeah. think that's what people like is the ritualness. But I have a feeling because now they're rebuilding all these new record pressing plants, mm-hmm. and that by the time they get the entire industry back to where it could grant three hundred and fifty million records, which I think is what the industry is demanding now. Mm-hmm. I think people are going to be like, I'm kind of over this, you know, yeah. so it's going to be interesting to see which way it goes because especially younger consumers that are getting into it for the kitsch value, right. Are they going to move and keep moving on with their lives and realize it's really a lot of work to lug a 500 record you know, piece of vinyl collection around where you can put your shoe CDs and a bunch of shoe boxes and they kind of a little more portable, if not just embracing streaming altogether as high definition sound is getting more and more mainstream. So we right, interesting right. to see which way it goes.
0: Yeah. And the other thing about that, that article is they had, cause it was very rich in interaction. You They had these little things where you could put on your head, you told you put on your headphones and see if you can tell which one's a vinyl recording and which one is just a digital recording. Without the the, the vinyl, that was, so there there are a couple of of ways that you can hear it, and I chose their Miles Davis. They have two Miles Davis recordings, oh, same recording of Oleo from the Miles Davis Quintet. So I'm going to play Miles one and Miles two, and let's see, dear listener, and maybe even Keith, which one is the digital file and which one is played off of vinyl. So here's Miles one. <music> Okay, that's miles one, and now here's miles two. Out of those two, which one is the vinyl recording and which one is the full digital recording? Which one do you I, think? Keith?
1: That's the whole thing. I can't tell. I don't have the ear for it. I kind uh-huh. of liked, like I thought, whatever that lead instrument was. Was it a clarinet or something? Uh, I was trumpet. Okay, so the trumpet. You yep. with the, okay with a little thing in in the, yeah, in the front. Right. That sounded the same on both. I felt the first one had better bass, and both kind of. I you know they had nice crisp drums. I did like the way the mix breathed a bit, but I kind of felt the bass fared better. On the first one. Mm-hmm. And now, isn't bass supposedly better on vinyl? So supposedly. I would guess the first one was the vinyl since the bass sounded better, but that's me not knowing a thing.
0: Okay. I will reveal which one is the recording. It is Miles number two. It was the second one I played. Oh that was the uh that was the one. It felt warmer to me, the first one. Much fuller, lusher, but that was just me. <laughs> I mean yeah, when I was listening to it.
1: Yeah, the first album that I've really spent a lot of time on trying to figure out the difference is Prince's Sign of the Times. So mm-hmm. they recently did that, you know, big, huge, super deluxe box that had the vinyl, the eight CDs, the whole nine yards so I bought. Actually, they, they were separate, but I bought the vinyl version and I mm-hmm. bought the CD version. Right. So I wound up spending 500 bucks on a oh single album. basically. Wow. But wow. It was, <laughs> was it worth know, it? Yeah. So comparing the original CD pressing Mm -hmm. to the new CD pressing, it's night and day. Night and day, completely different mix. And then I can actually, it felt a little bit more natural on vinyl, you know, in terms of just having that extra breath, you know, a little Mm -hmm. bit extra Mm -hmm. space in the mix. You actually felt in the room with Prince and the Musicians. And so most of which in that era were Prince, I totally get the vinyl experience, but yet I know that that's a very finite thing, which means every time I play the vinyl of that, it's going to start sounding worse and worse and worse. And right. the CD is going to consistently just sound amazing for the rest of my life on this planet. But that's the whole thing. You have to do a lot of work, a lot of work to figure out which version of anything is going to sound better because speaking of the police, the best sounding discs in my entire collection are the police box set that got released a couple of years ago, both on vinyl and CD that just sound light years ahead of a previous box set that came out maybe 10, 15 years earlier. Mm -hmm. So it is just amazing. Like when you get the right mixer and masterer into the room to really kind of work with the original master tapes, how good you could get something to sound.
0: I bought that box set as well, and it was probably put out. I think twenty 2020, twenty, maybe twenty twenty one. I did look to see where they did the mastering, and it was Abbey Road. So okay. that's you know a good place to go doing mastering, <laughs> a little yeah. studio in England. And especially um,
1: because but, if they have access to the master tapes, because remember Universal lost what generations of master tapes I in that know, big fire. Yeah, right. And so you got to be kind of suspicious as to when they say remastered. What are they working with now post-fire? Mm-hmm. Do they get access to the master tapes?
0: Right, right. So definitely, that that's a box set would be a good gift to somebody, the, the police box set of all the studio albums, of which they don't have that many, but you know. <laughs> it's like what five yeah. five records and that was it but uh boy what five records they have oh my god yeah, yeah. so
1: highly recommend that yeah 2020 2021 box set um because i think the cds came out a year after the vinyl and mm-hmm. the cd box does not give you the glorious book that the vinyl version gives you oh, so i was kind of yeah. bummed about that but also it was economy price i think i paid 26 bucks for it so highly recommend which way whichever way you go that police box set you know, if we're looking for what's the gift to give someone who has everything, and we're going to give more gift ideas, but I know we're almost running long here. So yeah, we I'm are. Bit, yeah.
0: Plow through me. everything or yes. do a
1: second podcast.
0: Let's do, let's do a kind of a lightning round real quick on the uh, holiday gift guide and see uh, how we can do like a, Very quick sentence or two on on your recommendations.
1: Okay, cool. So there is a lot of stuff. If you're looking at especially the Record Store Day new list, there's lots and lots of remixes and remasters coming. One of the interesting ones is the Queen Queen has the Miracle box set coming out. The Miracle has been expanded out to like eight CDs. I can't even imagine how many pieces of vinyl that's going to be. But it includes a whole second disc of demos and recorded songs of that era that never made the album. And one of them is a new Freddie Mercury song we've never heard before. And I kind of really lowered my expectations when I was going to mm-hmm. listen to it. Right. but I'm like, oh, it's beautiful. It's a mm-hmm. really great vocal performance by Freddie with very minimal
0: backing but the band. I think maybe we uh, can wrap up some of these Holiday gift guides with really quick and then kind of do the wrap up with the, the band that I teased at the outset which yeah. they had a branding issue problem so let's see what yeah. we how many well, of these we can get through
1: Let's dive right into that one, actually. What so, you know, okay. Yeah. So, another one of our Pop Dose writers, fellow Pop Dose writers, is Matt Wardlaw, who writes for Ultimate Classic Rock. Mm-hmm. And he got to do the liner notes, including a new band interview with John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band. And so, they have a new greatest hits out. Greatest hits, especially Foo Fighters has a new greatest hits coming out. yeah, mm-hmm. I already have it all. Like, not even excited, you know? And this is kind of like, okay, this is just a catalog reissue you know something not to get excited about but yet the greatest hits by john caffrey and the beaver brown band i'm like this might be one of the best albums i've bought
0: all year really okay okay so let's let's uh talk about their branding problem the i tease the film that it was that they were featured on so you, you go ahead
1: because here's the thing most people of the era especially looking at the video that was in the heaviest play of their biggest hit on the dark side was a band called Eddie and the Cruisers. Looked nothing like them. In a way, they were the first Milli Vanilli. Here's a band that's providing the audio for actors to play a different band in the movie.
0: Well, Michael Paré, right? Michael Paré yeah. was Eddie of Eddie and the Cruisers? Yeah, yeah, he was
1: one of those quintessential 80s stars, You know, <laughs> where he was big for a short period of time, but you know, really j- ridiculously gorgeous. And the mystery of what happened to Eddie was, oddly, between you and me, I've never seen the movie. But I
0: have. you're not really missing much, but the music's good. I'll yeah. give them that, you know? And and therein lies the rub, right? When your biggest hit is tied to a movie about a fictional band, and people are going to say, Here's the latest from Eddie and the Cruisers on the Dark Side by John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown band. That's a lot. Yeah, you, know, you have to tell people. You can't just say it's John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown band, because you could say, Well, you can get it on the Eddie and the Cruisers soundtrack. Well, who are Eddie and the Cruisers? thing is, a lot of people never knew what they
1: looked like. It became really? very clear, like, oh, there's a band behind this because it was such a huge hit. And so this band, you know, kind of ranks up there in sound with, you know, it's like a, more of an affordable Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Southside
1: Johnny, the Asbury Jukes. But, you know, oh, my God. Like when you put all their songs on one disc, sixteen songs of just absolute perfection, and most of them come from soundtracks. You got the Eddie and the Cruisers soundtrack, Mm -hmm. Rocky Four, Cobra, and then Eddie and the Cruisers Two. Eddie lives.
0: Eddie lives. (laughs) I guess he does. (laughs) Yeah, but but so So, Matt uh, Matt Wardlaw wrote the liner notes. He also, like as you said, he writes for Ultimate Classic Rock as well. And you have this, so you read through. The liner yeah. notes. and he did. It. He also did. He do an interview with. Yeah, so it's um, an
1: interview with I'm the gonna... band that's woven into the liner notes So it's really okay. more about the band telling their own story versus Wardlaw telling their story. Mm-hmm. And so, but Matt draws a lot of great stuff out of them because you figure, in a way, they have a lot in common with Twisted Sister. Now, Twisted Sister has a documentary that you could find on streaming, where that focuses. Twisted Sister, even though they were an '80s band, spent the entire '70s as an East Coast bar band. Hmm. And so that's kind of what the story of John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band is. They really did the circuit. They were like the house band at many bars. They really kind of toured that East Coast, you know, Jersey circuit. Yeah. They
0: basically did the Mid Atlantic right up to New England.
1: So they actually self pressed their first record and really hustled to get it on the radio. And then when radio in that era or in that, you know, area played it, they then got a big, sizable following. You know, Hmm. but they never really got that chance to then make a like a major label record until the Eddie and the Cruisers opportunity came along. Like Eddie and the Cruisers ideally probably would have wanted Bruce Springsteen to write the music, you know, (laughs) but can't afford them. But then here's this band that has the exact same lineup, the exact same sound. And so then, you know, kind of like they gave the band the story, and then they wrote songs to the story, and wind up writing their biggest hits. But you think, okay, is the album going to be on the dark side and a bunch of filler? Yeah. And no, 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 because I forgot. Tender Years actually got a lot of play. Also, every single song is just holy shit. Where have these songs been my entire life? You know. So I'm actually kind of eager now to go maybe check out their the couple of albums they did put out. But man, just in terms of sixteen tracks of nothing but hits kind of like the journey greatest hits you know Mm -hmm. right because i have that love that record i'm not buying all the rest of the journey records but you really do get just almost everything on the greatest hits record you know so highly recommended and then it's just really nice for you know a cd that a comes in a jewel case but b gets you a nice liner notes gets you to know the band and then whoever remixed this one talking about sound It sounds amazing, so highly recommend the new 2022 version of John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band's Greatest Hits, and they're still gigging, so I'm watching all my friends are checking them out on tour and buying the record right from the merch table, and so it's just great to see that this band is still going.
0: And this is one that, at least right now as of this recording, you can't stream. It's not available to stream. I think it's only available – that might change, but it looks like it's only going to be available as a physical copy. Good for them. I'm actually glad. You know what?
1: Because I think people are streaming as a way to get, you know, maybe put a single out there and like, hey, Uh check this out, buy the record. But yeah, I'm glad that people are like, yeah, go buy the record because that's the way to listen to it. Because here's the thing I didn't know. When you're streaming, if you don't have a digital audio converter and you plug your computer or your phone into a nice stereo system, you're still (laughs) getting a compressed sound unless you have this little, you know, looks like a key fob that, you know, trans... Mits the digital data back into an analog form, you're Mm. missing almost the entire mix. If you think you're listening on high definition audio, and if you don't have a digital audio converter, you're not. And so another one that came out is the fresh fruit for rotting vegetables, which is the 2022 Chris Lord J mix of the dead Kennedy's biggest album. And so this one also includes a nice book, great liner notes, but what they did was they went back to the source tapes to figure out What if we really put a 2022 spin on how to make the most out of every single part, which Uh includes mixing things around a bit. It has a little more weight, you know, a lot more crispness. It's not brick walled at all. And you figure the dead Kennedy is almost more relevant today than they've ever been. You know, wow. in terms okay. of their satire and stuff like that yeah, so yeah. you know because especially in woke culture if they put out the song kill the poor i don't think half the world would get it but you right, know right. it's great satire and it really talks about an important issue in a very dead kennedy's way you know holiday in cambodia every other all their big songs were on this record so highly recommend checking out fresh fruit for Rotting vegetables the 2022 chris lord lj mix
0: And if you feel like you got kind of shorted on the holiday gift giving guide, never fear. Keith will be back next month with a full stack because we have a little Google doc that we share and he's got a preview list and I'm like, that's a lot of music. You're not going to lack for gift giving ideas. Let's put it that way.
1: Okay, Next month, we're going to start off with box sets and we're just going to blow through all some of the amazing box sets. A lot of them that aren't even coming out to the end of November. So you got time. Some amazing, amazing box sets are coming out across the whole spectrum from punk to Post Punk, to New Wave, to New Romantic, the whole nine yards, and even some new Guns and Roses. So we'll talk about box sets next month. Excellent. Keith, thanks so much for being on the Planet
0: LP podcast. Always love having you on. Always a pleasure. All right. And that's a wrap. That's uh, episode 61, Put to Bed. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you soon.